Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty well. I've been thinking a lot lately about some uh, missed casting opportunities. See, later on in the show, Corey and I have a discussion about a nature documentary called Hippo Beach, which I had remembered as being narrated by Mark Hamill. And when I looked it up, it first listed it as being narrated by Stephen Fry. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Doesn't seem like I would normally mix those two up. Stephen Fry is the British actor who is probably best known for playing Jeeves and Oscar Wilde. And then I looked a little bit further, and it turns out Mark Hamill narrated the American version for PBS, and Stephen Fry narrated the British version for the BBC. But both narrations had identical scripts, which leads me to believe that maybe Stephen Fry is considered the British Mark Hamill, and maybe they're up for a lot of the same roles. I, for one, think Stephen Fry would have done a pretty decent job in Star Wars. I mean, maybe Alec Guinness would be more comfortable mentoring a Jedi who he could reminisce with about both having attended Space Oxford or whatever, and maybe they both did Space Footlights. But mostly, I would like to hear a version of the Joker's voice that is posh and British and has a very dry wit and is maybe slightly embarrassed to be murdering the Batman, but at this point it seems like it would be rude not to, so stiff upper lip and all that. So anyway, that was the recasting that I was most excited about until I remembered that for the nature documentary series Planet Earth, the British version was David Attenborough and the American version was Sigourney Weaver. And now, I hadn't been excited about another potential Ghostbusters reboot, but, uh, could be interesting. Anyway, let's get on to the comic book talk. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. Who's drama club president who most honors Thespis, who stirs the gold poop spoon? Tell us, please, dear synopsis. Thanks, Devin. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 37, November 1987. Two on the town. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Pablo Marcos, lettered by Janice Chiang, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Barbara Randall. Teen Titan Roll Call, Raven, Nightwing, Starfire, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Wonder Girl, and Jericho, previously in the new Teen Titans. Ever since Raven banished her extra-dimensional demonic bad dad from her bird-shaped soul tummy, the Azerathian empath had been free to experience the emotions she had spent a lifetime shunning. In order to roll around in the most fragrant of feeling stink the city had to offer, the avian-themed enchantress began renting an apartment in the theater district and luxuriating in the ambient passion emitted by the local thespians. 
Perhaps not unrelated to her change of residence and new hobby of empathic eavesdropping, the previously pent-up adventurer developed an infatuation with her fellow titan, Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Nightwing. Oblivious to his colleague's crush, Dick went about his daily life as a Teen Titan, joining his teammates in the trouncing of a solar-powered D-list supervillain named Sunburst. The Titan's tussle with this unimaginatively monikered malefactor was witnessed by an anonymous evil CEO. Seeing this super-powered struggle sparked a notion for the insidious industrialist. He had recently hired a scientist named Jonathan Surrey to invent him some exoskeletons. Jonathan now wanted to get paid, but the sinister CEO decided he'd probably rather just murder him instead. The only problem was that as of 1987, murder was still illegal in New York. To avoid facing the consequences for his crime, the perfidious plutocrat hatched a complicated scheme. He would put on an exoskeleton and dress up as an anthropomorphic gnu named Wildebeest to commit a series of crimes and goad the Titans into attacking him. Towards the end of the fight, he would sneak off and leave a robot duplicate in his place for the Titans to destroy. He would repeat this process a few times, and on the final encounter, instead of a robot, he would leave the corpse of Jonathan Surrey in a wildebeest suit, and both the heroes and the authorities would be convinced that the wildebeest had been Surrey all along, and that the Titans had accidentally killed him because they thought he was a robot. The only flaw in this complicated but surprisingly sensical scheme, apart from its evilness, was that, as the would-be wildebeest chief non-Jonathan scientist informed him, there was no such thing as robots in the DC Universe. Good to know. The quick-thinking capitalist modified his scheme by using remote-controlled exoskeletons instead of the apparently mythological robots, and proceeded as planned. Things went off without a hitch. In his penultimate punch-em-up with our hoodwinked heroes, the CEO in his wildebeest outfit badly injured both Raven and Nightwing. Pushing her restorative abilities to their limits, Raven managed to heal both herself and the initially comatose object of her infatuation. The surreptitiously smitten sorceress stayed with a still-snoozing dick in his hospital room at Star Labs, while the rest of the gang rushed headlong into the final stage of the anonymous CEO's trap. Enraged that the being she believed to be an evil automaton had hospitalized her boyfriend, Starfire shot Wildebeest with a blast of her magic space fire. A disproportionately large explosion resulted, and when the wreckage cleared, the gang found the deceased body of Jonathan Surrey wearing the smoking remains of a wildebeest costume. Back in his fancy downtown office, the evil CEO put his feet up on his desk and laughed as he watched Starfire and her teammates be arrested for the murder that he had committed. Gadzooks! Will Raven attempt to defeat Wildebeest by using her tried-and-true method of psychically impersonating his dead wife? How does Dick celebrate surviving his brush with death? And how will the anonymous evil CEO celebrate getting away with the perfect murder? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No? But she does defeat a security guard by psychically impersonating his dead mom. By engaging in two of his favorite activities, detective work and weird kissing and by choosing not to destroy any of the incriminating evidence, and then confessing to the crime while he knows he's being videotaped. Damn it, evil CEO! Dick wakes up in his hospital bed and seems strangely cool with the fact that Raven is staring at him creepily and has been watching him sleep. He thanks her for healing him up, and she's like, No problem, Dick! And thinks to herself, 
Just like it won't be a problem for you to leave your space girlfriend so that you can hug and kiss me all the time! They turn on the TV and find that the news is dominated by the story of the Titan's arrest. After a few seconds, Dick has had enough. He hobbles out of bed, pulls off all his bandages, and changes into his business spandex so that he and Raven can clear the Titans' respective good names. As they are about to leave, Dr. Sarah Charles stops in and says, Hey, you're still all banged up. You can't leave the hospital yet. Dick is like, But I want to. I guess Dr. Charles sees the Hippocratic Oath as sort of a loose set of suggestions, because when she hears that, she's like, Good point. Have fun. Nightwing and Raven teleport directly into the jail cell the rest of the team is being held in. After a quick debriefing, Dick gives Coriander a weird kiss and tells her that he and Raven are going to go clear her name. Raven thinks to herself, I wish he was doing a weird kiss on me. After saying goodbye, the Azerathian and the object of her sudden crush teleport off to do some detecting. No sooner have they left than the guards come in and say, Okay, everybody but Starfire has been released on bail. Try not to murder anyone else before your court date. The gang bids their big orange friend a tearful goodbye and promises to do everything they can to get her out of there. Raven and Dick head to the morgue to see if there's anything about Jonathan Suri's corpse that might exonerate Starfire. Turns out, there is. The coroner is super helpful. He's like, Yup, I got the body of the guy your pal's accused of murdering right over there. We don't usually do autopsies on murder victims, but as a special favor, we ran those tests you asked us to. Looks like he died of solar radiation. And it was a much different type of solar radiation than Starfire has, so I guess that means she's innocent. Wait, really? Well, that was easy. Dick calls the gang's lawyer and the police and tells him what he's just learned. Then he's like, Now that we have incontrovertible proof that Starfire's innocent, let's look for some more proof that she's innocent. Uh, why? If you prove twice that she didn't do it, does she get like a coupon for one free murder to be acquitted of at a later date? Speaking of court dates, the trial of Sunburst. The guy that our heroes beat up at the beginning of the last issue is currently underway. Starfire's been let out of jail to testify, so Dick and Raven pop over to the courthouse to watch the trial for a minute. At one point, the prosecutor mentions that Sunburst's costume went missing sometime before the trial. When Dick hears that, he's like, Hey, I bet the real wildebeest stole that costume and used it to murder Jonathan Surrey, then stuffed Surrey into a spare wildebeest costume and framed Starfire for the murder. Hey, Nightwing? That's some impressive supposition right there, and it happens to be totally correct, but you really need to show your work on something like that, or the teacher's just going to assume you got that answer by using a crime calculator. Inspired to do some more snooping, Dick and Raven leave the courtroom. Without being told, Raven somehow knows that Dick wants to go to Brooklyn to interview the late Mr. Surrey's former landlord, Mrs. Kennedy. Huh. They teleport to the landlady's door, and after a bit of chit-chat to establish that she's a bit of a busybody, Mrs. Kennedy tells them that Jonathan Surrey was a nice man who was a good scientist and a former Marine who had a prosthetic leg. The heroes thank Mrs. Kennedy for her help and leave. Once they're out the door, Dick is like, The wildebeest we fought wasn't a nice man. That proves that he couldn't have been Surrey. Let's go check out his apartment so that we can triple prove that Starfire's innocent. If we do that, 
I'm pretty sure she's allowed to legally park in loading zones for a year. God, do I love my girlfriend, Starfire. On their way to the apartment, Raven keeps staring at Dick with a creepily beatific look on her face, thinking, Please love me and hug me and kiss me. Please love me and hug me and kiss me. They arrive at their destination, and Dick is like, Let's see if we can find out who Suri was working for, because for reasons that I choose not to elaborate on, that's probably the person who murdered him, and therefore stole the sunburst suit and framed Coriander, who, incidentally, I am very much in love with. Also, I... Um... Then he abruptly stops talking and passionately, but weirdly, kisses Raven, who has been staring at him creepily this whole time, thinking, Please kiss me. Huh. When they finish their weird smooch, Dick is like, Well, back to work. Say, Raven, could you pop over to the patent office and find out who owns the technology Surrey invented? I bet that's his boss slash murderer. Raven does as Dick asks. As soon as he's gone, Dick thinks to himself, when I kissed Raven just now, for a second, it was like I was totally in love with her. Which is weird, because I'm not. Oh well, back to detectiving. A few minutes later, Raven returns from the patent office, where, after zapping a security guard with a fantasy of pure ecstasy, she managed to snag the file that Dick was angling for. Dick is like, thanks Raven. You know, now that I think about it, I guess I am in love with you after all. Huh. They leave a message on the Titan's answering machine to let them know that they found even more evidence, super duper proving, that Starfire is innocent. When the gang gets the message, they rush over to Coriander's prison cell to tell her the good news that she'll be free soon. Everyone's very impressed that the Tamaranian warrior princess hasn't just blown up the jail and wandered off. Good for her, I guess. Meanwhile, Dick and Raven head over to the office of the anonymous evil CEO to confront him about the fact that they think he is A, the wildebeest, and 2, a murderer. And third, a real jerk. Upon entering the building, the duo of do-gooders is attacked by some security guards. Dick kicks some of them in the face, and Raven makes them hallucinate that their dead moms are yelling at them. It's an unconventional but remarkably effective combination. The CEO sees the skirmish on his security cameras, so he changes into his wildebeest costume and attacks them. As they fight, he soliloquizes about the fact that he did all the Jonathan murdering and Starfire framing, and how now that the Titans are wise to him, he's gonna have to murder them too. He nearly makes good on this threat. The tempestuous tycoon beats the shit out of Nightwing and throws him off a scaffolding, but at the last minute, Raven leaps in and teleports the object of her affection to safety. Wildebeest flees, and when the police show up and see the security footage of him confessing to all the crimes and stuff, they drop all the charges against Starfire and let her out of prison. Hooray! Dick is overjoyed and weirdly kisses his space girlfriend, as Raven looks on and thinks to herself, Sucks for Starfire that Dick is in love with me, not her, but I guess I'll let them enjoy one last weird kiss. Epilogue. From an undisclosed location the anonymous evil CEO watches a news story about the fact that his plan fell apart. The police are looking for him, but all they have is the alias Walter Smith and a vague description of him as a 38-year-old business guy with white hair and a bushy beard. As he watches the story, he carefully removes a fake beard and mustache, then takes off the realistic mask that he has apparently been wearing this whole time and drops it to the floor. 
He swears vengeance on those meddling teen titans and walks out into the night. The end. Well, if he was wearing a mask the whole time, why did he bother to keep his back turned to us or his face shrouded in ominous shadow for two full issues? Also, would it have killed the artist to have drawn one panel where Jonathan Surrey was wearing a hat with some tassels hanging off of it so that I could have made a Surrey with a fringe on top joke? I mean, come on, guys. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. It's a Friday evening, and uh, we generally record on the weekends in the daytime. So it has a, I don't know, a little bit more of a festive <laughs> feel than usual. Yeah, no, I agree. It's more adult. It's tighten up the defense after dark. Yeah, literally. It's a nice change of pace. Mm-hmm. How's uh, things on your end? Um, okay. I'm a little bit concerned about something. Have you noticed me talking any more or less about gold panning than I normally do? Well, you always did talk about it more than the average city slicker. So I'd, mm -hmm. I'd say, no, I haven't really noticed a, a change in your baseline gold panning talk. Why? I'm a little bit worried that I might be turning into an old prospector. I, I woke up this morning and my knee hurt. And then when I came downstairs, it was raining. So I think I'm starting to get that mm, storms of brewing. I can feel it in my trick knee. Oh, that's not a prospector thing. I think that's just an aging thing. Oh, but don't we all eventually age into old timey gold prospectors in one way or another? I don't know. I feel like the dental technology is better than I think old-timey prospectors had it. Don't they have, a like, a missing tooth to spit the tobacco out of? Yeah, in a perfect world. I'm pretty sure it is just, like, the last step of aging in general, and has been since the dawn of man. Wasn't that the Sphinx's old riddle? What walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and in the evening says, There's gold in them there hills! The answer is man. Mm -hmm. I will file that away <laughs> should I have to uh, riddle a Sphinx. Good call. Better safe than sorry. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's how I'm doing. Well, any luck? Nah, there, there isn't gold in them there hills. Oh, it's a shame. Yeah, I know. You want to talk about a comic? I would like to talk about a comic. I don't 100% know if I want to talk about this comic, but let's. Kind of telegraphed your answer a little bit, but what did you think of this comic book? Let's see. I think my two main highlights from it are that we, I think for the first time, get to hear Cyborg's British accent. And I also learned the phrase... Or, oh shit, have I learned this on the podcast before and forgot? Uh, rubber chicken banquet or rubber chicken dinner? Oh, uh, I don't know if you had learned it before. Apparently, if you did, you didn't learn it very well, but maybe this time it'll stick. Well, after that little debacle, I think it should. Um, yeah, so those are my two highlights. Rubber chicken banquet and uh, Cyborg talking in an English accent. Yeah, I missed Cyborg talking in an English accent, which is a goddamn shame, because I found myself really struggling to give a shit about this comic one way or the other. 
Yeah. It just felt like it was barely a comic book. I thought it was fine. It didn't piss me off too much. I mean, I'm still upset about the Raven bullshit in the same way I was in the last issue, but there's not the promise of, oh, this plot's getting interesting. The book didn't seem that interested in the plot. Yeah. So I'm going to read you my notes on just the high-level synopsis, and you tell me if I missed anything. Okay. Dick clears Starfire somehow. Kisses Raven. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. That is pretty much it. And, I mean, both of those things are taken care of by page 15. Like, he essentially clears Starfire on page 6 of the comic book. And there's just no stakes after that. Like, it's creepy watching him and Raven, but that dynamic has already been kind of established, and we can talk about it a little bit, but it really didn't seem like there was any point to it after that. I don't know. It was pretty frustrating in that regard, but also it was fine. The artwork was pretty. There were some, I guess, no, there really weren't interesting bits. (laughs) (laughs) There was other bits. There were some bits that happened. You know, they interviewed an old lady. Raven did her best impression of uh, Faith No More and talked about how she cares a lot. A lot. (laughs) Regular Mike Patton. Yeah, I know. I found myself looking for stuff that wasn't there. Like when they were interviewing the old woman, there's a panel in which her eyes are are kind of an amethyst color. And I was like, wait, is this an Aqualad (laughs) (laughs) tie-in? Oh, maybe. But no. We are left to our own devices to make our own fun in this issue in a way that I don't think it's unique, but this extent of me not giving a shit about this comic and seemingly the comic not giving a shit about the comic was, I think, in a sense, unprecedented. Yeah, and and strange, too, because the artwork is really well executed. Mm-hmm. It is weird. We just, in the last issue of The Defenders, had Pablo Marco stop inking that And then in this issue of New Teen Titans, he starts inking this. I think his style is better matched with Eduardo Barreto than it is Don Perlin. But it is interesting to just see the same names bouncing around. Gosh, yeah, I somehow missed that. Yeah, I I really did like the art in here. And I had your same irritation, I guess, with how the Raven character is being handled in this one. And tell me if I'm misunderstanding it but i think the implication is that dick isn't just confused he's being manipulated by raven that was my impression but there isn't any actual textual evidence of this so it is still possible that he's just being a dick and cheating on starfire yeah i don't think that's the case but in my interpretation of it i'm like trying to contextualize what 1989 was like culturally if that might be the case like is that something that a protagonist in a comic book might be doing maybe yeah because if she's not doing it the other implication is if you just stand next to somebody and you're like love me love me love me like to yourself (laughs) it might work out you never know i mean that hasn't been my experience (laughs) (laughs) it's so awkward it really is So one thing that is kind of interesting that's done that's a little thing is we have a new letterer this issue. It is Janice Chiang, 
And one of the things that she does is the word bubble and thought bubble to Raven will be connected by a single little dot in the middle that changes it from a word bubble to a thought bubble. So she'll start saying something and then we'll finish the thought by just thinking it. And I thought that was an interesting technique that I don't really remember seeing that much before. It would have been more interesting if she had ended any of her thoughts with something other than, I care so much for you, Dick Grayson. Love, love, love. Hold me, Dick. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that. It gets very redundant. And I get that they're driving that point home. Like you, I also interpreted it that Raven is probably subconsciously manipulating Dick's emotions, but we don't really know for sure. I wish that Dick had a clear tell when he was being fucked with emotionally, like Donna or Namor. Like with Namor, usually his hair gets out of place if he's being mind-controlled, and with Donna, she's going to strangle a cat. Neither of those seem to be the case with Dick, although he did it look like maybe strangle Raven a little bit when they had their first kiss. It was like a weird orgasmic choke kiss thing that made me uncomfortable in more ways than him cheating on Starfire. Yeah, the whole thing is weird, but I know what you mean. It's not actually the only weird kiss that's in this issue either. Take a look at page 25. Oh, this is the the Starfire kiss where he's like, ah. (laughs) It's weird. Like, they're trying to kiss, but their mouths just aren't matching up. But it looks like he's kissing maybe the side of her mouth and her cheek. But also it gives the impression that he's trying to use a lot of tongue, even though he's not hitting her mouth. <laughs> he's he's grimacing in, con- in concentration. Put the tongue in the mouth sideways. <laughs> like, it's trying so hard to worm that tongue in there. It's so gross. It's, I mean, just from that and then the one with Raven on page 11, you see when he's going in for the kiss, he just grabs her by the throat and says, Raven. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's grabbing her own throat? Because he doesn't have white gloves. Nobody in a New Teen Titans comic book knows how to kiss. <laughs> I don't know. Raven seems happy enough. Fair enough. But I mean, that is perhaps because textually she has never kissed or dealt with emotions before. Yeah. And I think the other clue to that she's possibly subconsciously manipulating him is when they're leaving starfire's trial she's like we're going to brooklyn and he's like how did you uh know that i didn't tell you and she's like oh i just sensed it from your feelings yeah he has body language that shows that he wants to go to brooklyn he's just feeling a little brooklyn you know you look like you want to go to brooklyn today oh yeah i do so i mean i think that's like she's doing some brain snooping yeah i think you're probably right to be fair he is carrying a old Go Dodgers pennant and wearing a Gowanus Forever t-shirt and carrying a stuffed Spike Lee doll under his arm. But I think you're right. I think it probably is a mind control hint. And for me liking Dick Grayson, I hope that that's the case. For me liking Raven, I hope that it's subconscious. For me, as a comic book reader and human being, which, I mean, as we have established, I am a human man from Earth, I just kind of wish that storyline wasn't happening. I'm 
so over the trope of powerful woman who can't control her emotions. It's been done way more than it should have ever been done. And specifically, it's been done in comic books by women with bird-themed powers. And I'm just over it. Yeah, that is a weird twist on a trope. I guess the only good thing to come of all that awkwardness is that one panel right after that awkward kiss where Dick realizes what's happened and then immediately is like, I have to go look at this computer screen really intently and do some work. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Although, I mean, at that point, I don't know why he still has to do that work. Oh, he doesn't. He's just like, I need to pretend to be busy so I don't have to deal with what just happened. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, really, from then on, the rest of the issue is just busy work and him trying to find something to do. Because, yeah, like I said, on, on the sixth page, he's like, oh, I found evidence, clear, direct, physical evidence that Starfire did not commit this crime. He immediately phones her lawyer, which is the responsible thing to do. And she testifies and it is entered into the court case. And essentially it's like, okay, wheels are in motion. She's going to be cleared. And then he's like, now that we have this evidence that she didn't do it, I guess we'll look for more evidence that she didn't do it. And we as readers are supposed to be engaged by that in some way. You know, I got so distracted by the fact that he went to go break into wherever Wildebeest's, you know, corporate headquarters are to find more evidence and then gets beat up that by the end of the comic, I was like, wait, how did you even solve the crime? You just went to the guy's place and got your ass kicked. And I was like, oh, wait, no, that's right. He solved it at the beginning. (laughs) Right. And I mean, then after that, yes, you do get the fight scene with Wildebeest where... He's videotaped by his own surveillance equipment, beating up the Teen Titans and saying, And I did the murder, too! Which, it's frustrating because they had built up whoever this wildebeest guy is. We get his pseudonym in this one, it's Walter Smith. I don't think that's his real name. But in the last issue, we built him up as a villain that was intelligent and competent and ruthless and had an evil scheme that made sense, and in this issue, he's just a fucking idiot. Wearing a Tom Selleck mask. <laughs> Seriously, look at the panel on the bottom of page 26, as he's taking his sunglasses off. His eyebrows and his eyes look very older, Magnum P.I. Okay, yes, when he's taking it off. Once it is off, I was looking at the next page, and I was just like, oh man, Corey doesn't have a very high opinion of Tom Selleck. (laughs) Well, no, once you remove the mustache, all bets are off. That is fair, and I think having seen Tom Selleck, I feel like recently he hasn't had a mustache, and yeah, he does look more like the mask on the last page, where he just looks like one of the ghosts that chases Pac-Man around. (laughs) (laughs) It is a weird move, though, that he bothers to take the fake mustache off of the mask before taking the mask off. Is he just going to save those for later, but he figures the mask is done? I think that question right there is like at the root of a lot of the issues with this story. If only we could crack that code. Unnecessary actions. But that's not the only dumb thing that he does either. Also... I don't know why he hasn't changed the wildebeest outfit. His plan with that is done. He still wants to use the fucking super powerful robo exoskeleton, whatever, but you've spent a lot of time and energy and planning that culminated in you killing off this persona that you created. 
why wouldn't you just change the mask? Like, why not make a fucking gazelle if you want to go with a theme or a duiker or something? It doesn't make any sense to keep the wildebeest persona going at this point. He knows that he's being filmed by security cameras. Why does he brag about having done a murder? Yeah, it's almost like he's an inconsistent character. Huh. Well, that can't be, though. I think it's funny, too, the panel on page, I think it's page 26, where the, the news anchor is like, and here's a composite sketch of like this guy with completely white hair who looks pretty old, and he's 38. Yeah, I felt very insulted by that. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? I mean, I guess you get your, like, you know, Steve Martins and whatnot, who have always kind of looked like they were in their 50s. It was always weird for me seeing Steve Martin in movies playing the young guy, because I was like, but wait, but he's got gray hair. How is he the young guy? I mean, I get that they're like Holden Caulfield types out there who, you know, have been able to buy beer since they were 11. But still, it seemed a little incongruous with, yeah, the news reporter and that it's just like, uh, police sketch artists have interviewed people who worked closely with this man for many years, and they've came up with a description of a guy wearing sunglasses who we know is 38 for some reason, even though he has a Santa Claus beard. Yep. Nice work, people. There's just so many mysteries. Mm. But, like, not the kind that make you want to know what happened. <laughs> no. But I guess he escaped, so we'll have more wildebeest adventures coming up. Well, I guess, at least on the cover, we do see his mittens. Yeah! No, nice to see the mittens. I appreciate his dedication to the motif, even at the cost of efficiency. I wish he would have switched it up and maybe decided to be a different kind of menacing ungulate. I mean, I, there are menacing ungulates. I mean, he could be a hippopotamus. That would be scary. Oh, yeah. They kill more people than um anybody. I was going to say lions, but I, I might be mixing those facts up. No, I don't think you are. They are the apparently the, the deadliest animal in Africa. I think people would learn to just stop messing with them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, thanks to Milton Bradley's public service announcements, we all know that they're hungry, hungry. I saw a PBS documentary a while ago about hippos that was rad, and it was narrated by Mark Hamill. And the main thing that I remember from it is that in one scene, they show a hippo fucking another hippo, and Mark Hamill says, This river horse is riding high. <laughs> Do you think he ad-libbed that part? I like to think so. It did make me just want to have Mark Hamill narrate all pornography. <laughs> I think that's the only line he's got, though. <laughs> just, like, have him do a Bob Saget on America's Funniest Home Video <laughs> over, mm -hmm. like, porn tube or whatever. <laughs> Look at that river horse go. Yeah, he has to incorporate that line into all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like his trademark. I mean, people would be disappointed if they didn't, you know? Yeah. And, like, by the end of it, he's going to be just like, ah, it's going to make me say the river horse thing again. <laughs> Can't I just say, may the force be with you? No, Mark Hamill, people are over that. Say the hippo thing. Fine. Should we talk about what Raven does to those security guards? I think we probably should. She says that she's concerned that Dick is being too brutal with them. I would so much rather have Dick 
punch me in the face or kick me in the head than have a giant disembodied head of my mom that is oozing with Kirby Crackle appear in front of me and yell at me about what a disappointment I am. It's so funny, these two scenes where she's like, oh, I'm going to help these these poor security guards that aren't living up to their potential. And the way that these two characters are drawn when she's helping them, they're convulsing in agony. Yeah. And one, then the second guy, she's like, I feel so much pain in you. And she's like blasting him with this whatever, knocking his hat off his head, literally, while he grabs his face. And he's like, ah! I mean, in her defense, Dick also is having a very strange interaction with his security guard. He either kicks all of the buttons off his shirt. <laughs> That's true. Or the guy was in the process of getting dressed with a gun in one hand when Dick showed up. Yeah, that is a strange art choice. What was he doing? What are these security guards getting up to at Wildebeest Industries? Yeah, gosh, up to no good. But you're right, Raven's use of her powers and her behavior in that fight scene is really weird. That and the interaction she has with the different security guard while Dick is hard at work on his computer make me wonder if part of why she's losing control of her powers is for the same reason that the dude with Cinderella hair a few episodes ago lost control of his powers doling out hot tub orgy fantasies as a harsh mistress. Yeah. Like, you look at her on page 13, and she rolls up on the security guard so that she can steal his punch card from the computer, and she says, Feel joy and pleasure. Let your mind soar and experience the greatest happiness you've ever known. And you see the look on the guy's face, and he's like, Okay, hot tub orgy it is. That must be it, because he looks so uncomfortable. Yeah. And, like, embarrassed, and, like, almost grimacing with, like, oh, <laughs> okay, I, this is weird. Yeah. I think that's a kind of understandable reaction to have to somebody showing up who just has that kind of mugging to the camera of feelingsness that Raven is displaying in what seems like every panel she appears on in this comic book. Like, it's just all significant glances and looks of longing and rapture all the time. So Lisa and I are watching this terrible show called The Good Witch, which I, I've described it before, I think fairly accurately, as a show that is made by and for scented candles. <laughs> but every scene in that, the scene ends with a dramatic moment and then they need everybody to be quiet for a few seconds while they play the music. But it's kind of unnatural that people would be quiet when something dramatic has just happened. So they just pan around and show people having significant looks to each other and the camera. And that's what it looks like Raven is doing in every panel in this. That sounds bad. Why are you <laughs> watching it? Uh, it's comforting in a really weird way. We have fun goofing on it while we watch it. And... Uh, I don't know, especially this last year, it's just kind of nice to watch a pleasant show where nothing happens, mm. and there are absolutely no stakes. That's fair. I mean, this season, there was a chili cook-off. On The Good Witch? Yeah. Is it like witches like who do magic stuff? No, it's witches who don't do magic stuff, but it's implied that maybe they could. 
but usually they just nod knowingly and give advice. Or platitudes. Really more platitudes than advice. Hmm. Yeah. But there was a chili cook-off. That's... An old man one. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Apparently he made pretty good chili. And then after he won, did everybody look around meaningfully while the music played? Of course they did. Ah, good. I'm getting the hang of this. Yeah, it's a good show. So there were just a couple of minor things that I wanted to bring up before we get into the minutia. One of them is I did think it was kind of funny when Beast Boy offers or attempts to offer the defense, but you can't hold her responsible. She thought it was a robot. And from the look on the guards' faces as they are letting the other Teen Titans out of jail, they are both looking like, we heard from a scientist there's no such thing as robots. Yeah, they're not buying it. No, because that scientist told them last episode, robots are mere science fiction. So you shape-shifting teenage boy and you cybernetic organism, you guys can get out of here. Leave the alien in jail. Yeah, get out of here, take the Amazonian princess and the mind-control mutant with you, because we're not fooled by your science fiction claims that there was a robot. I like how the cops also have their uniforms unbuttoned pretty low. They're, like, super casual. Nobody likes buttons in this issue. Yeah, I guess. Well, it was still the 80s. I was pretty young in the 80s. I don't remember it being a particularly button agnostic time, but apparently you're right. Maybe that guy that's a security guard, like, when cops get fired, they get jobs as security guards. Maybe that was what was going on there. Man, there was another, speaking of awkward kisses on that same page, (laughs) when Dick is kissing Starfire, he's bugging his eyes out. (laughs) Looks like Rodney Dangerfield. Like, can't believe this is happening. Maybe that is why Dick only wants to date aliens, because he can convince them this is what Earth kissing is. (laughs) He's just like, I'm just going to bite your lower lip (laughs) and stare at you (laughs) really weird. Hey. The only other thing I just wanted to mention real quick is, I think this might have come up last issue, but I can't remember if it did. It is very odd to me that the emergency doctor that they rush Nightwing to is Cyborg's physical therapist. Hmm. Well, she is a doctor by title. Or do you think that's just like a nickname? No, I mean, she's a doctor, clearly, but she's presumably a specialist in physical therapy. It seems weird that they wouldn't just take him to a hospital. Mm. That instead they would take the only regular human member of their team, they would make sure to rush him to the super science hospital that specializes in futuristic robotics and have a physical therapist do surgery on him. They take him to Star Labs, right? To get work Yeah, it just seemed like a weird choice. Well, I guess just familiar setting, familiar character. Yeah. I mean, when you are unconscious and bleeding to death from multiple internal injuries, uh, it's most important that you be put at ease by mm-hmm. a familiar face. Yeah, take him to the robot shop. I'm sorry, the what, Corey? I wasn't born yesterday. The cyborg shop? <laughs> there we go. That's right. We all know <laughs> robots don't exist. Exactly. You mentioned Cyborg's British accent. I would love to hear you take a crack at that. All right. I will if you will. And it's on page two, like the opening page. 
and it's when they all get the cell doors slammed on them, and he says, what a revolting development this is! Oh! See? I read that as him doing an impression of the thing, because that's kind of one of his catchphrases. Although I think I've seen it on Looney Tunes, too, like Daffy Duck says that, so maybe it's from, like, an old radio show or something. But I always associate it with uh, Ben Grimm, so... I was reading that as a hard Brooklyn accent, but I like it better as British. You're right. What a revolting development this is. He should say governor at the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, apologies to any British listeners. <laughs> oh, I'm not apologizing, Corey. They know what they did. <laughs> to, to endure our attempts at an accent of theirs. Okay. Well, you know what? They just need to get over it. And guess what, guys? Mr. Thomas moved his muffin shop here. It's ours now. <laughs> Nooks, crannies, and all. Hell yeah. Well, are you ready to move into the minutiae? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting us off with? Yeah, boy. You want to do a bozone? Yeah, Corey. Let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to talk about first? Well, only in that it is, I guess, appropriate for the name of the category, insofar as it is uh, named after a website for uh, trombone enthusiasts, is when Dick calls the wildebeest a hornhead. On page 21. Pretty good. Other than that, I had a, I think it was from Wildebeest referring to the Titans as fools. I always like mm-hmm. to see a good fool. And uh, that was what I had. I had kind of a backhanded compliment. I saw it as Cyborg kind of, I think, careless whispersing Coriander when he says, you know, sometimes we forget how smart she is. Maybe it's the way she looks, or maybe it's that she's always acting so emotional. But she's not stupid. She was taught by the masters of her world. Mebby. And so he gets a lot of Mebbies in there. But basically what he's saying is, you know, she's not really stupid. I know she looks stupid and acts stupid, but she's not really stupid. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like such a backhanded compliment. It reminds me of that line in Careless Whispers that always bothered me. That was the, though it's easy to pretend, I know you're not a fool. Or it's just like, huh. Yeah, I, I didn't like that either, because I felt like the other implication is if you're beautiful, you can't be smart. Yeah, and I think we beautiful people are pretty fucking sick of that shit. I've had enough. It's time we stood up and made our voices heard. <laughs> Fair enough. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Well... I already talked about the scene after Dick kisses Coriander and is aghast and then pretends to be busy. And he does so in front of a computer that is drawn, I think, at the time to look pretty high tech. But it just has this like enormous uh, CRT monitor, which definitely you wouldn't see these days. So that Mm -hmm. was one. What do you think he's working with there? Is that like a Apple IIe, IBM PC Jr.? What's he got there? Maybe an Amiga? Yeah, probably. Maybe a Tandy? Yeah, we could just keep saying names of old computers that we remember. No, those are the only three I can remember. Okay. 
on page 10 that the guy with the members only jacket that they surprise he has his sleeves pushed up and has the little snaps around the collar and everything that's very 80s yeah i think he's gonna come up in a later category for me but that dude specifically i don't know who he's supposed to represent but that looks like a co-worker cameo just because he has such a distinct look for a background character you know oh totally I had Cyborg referencing that his answering machine was Blinken. That, I think, is a, not as super specific, but it definitely sets it before a certain time, you know? Mm-hmm. And the fact that the security guard that Raven treats to a hot tub orgy fantasy, in that scene she appears to be stealing a punch card to a computer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good point. That's pretty old timey. It's weird because I don't think that was initially what was drawn by Eduardo Barreto, but it looks like the inker maybe made the decision that that must be a punch card, but it's shaped like a manila folder, but then it has punch card holes in it. So it was kind of confusing there. Yeah, that might have been a miscue between pencils and inks. This one seems like a layup to me, but I've been surprised before. Who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Yeah, maybe I will surprise you. Oh. For president of the drama club, I had Henry the security guard because of his performance on pages 17 through 19. I see. I did not have Henry the security guard. Let's get mine out of the way real quick before we go on to look at Henry, uh, because we've mostly been over this before, but for her significant good witch glances and her Mike Patton impression, I had Raven. Yeah, she was a close runner-up for me too, especially because in all of the scenes where she's like getting ready to transport Dick, I feel like her flourishes with the hands held high and like kind of jazz hands mm-hmm. is like even more pronounced. But yeah, I guess Henry is putting on a bit of a show. In every panel, he's like gesticulating wildly with his hands. I think that's kind of a reasonable reaction to having the disembodied head of your enormous space mom show up to yell at you. But uh, I can see where you're coming from. It also does occur to me that his first and perhaps only spoken lines are him saying... uh, Ma, but I think that might just be you do see that he has just fallen on his butt. So maybe he's just saying, Ma, but maybe he's Southern. <laughs> if that's the only line you get, you know, you got to act physically, right, to, to make your mark. Mm-hmm. And in the, the following page, look at the angle of his legs as he's convulsing on the ground. Oh, what is going on there? It's not natural. No. He's really hamming it up. Or he's just extremely flexible. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if having circus skills is necessarily a drama club thing, but they're certainly not mutually exclusive. And I mean, that is the panel where Raven, apropos of nothing that has been mentioned up until that point, when a coworker says, what'd you do to Henry? She's just like, I just made him not drunk. (laughs) It's like, wait, you never said anything about him being a drunk before. Oh, yeah. That's why he didn't pursue his dreams of music. Yeah, Lord knows you can't do both of those. (laughs) Man, yeah, she is not from here. 
Well, this was actually a pretty tricky category for me. Who did you have as your Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans? And who did you have as your Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans? Ugh, I don't like this section of this issue. For Aqualad, I wrote Dick, I guess. <laughs> he solved the crime, I guess. Corey, I had, I guess, Dick? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. It's with the specific caveat that if we are going with the assumption that he is being mind controlled. <laughs> That's too funny. I had the same thing I said. That is, <laughs> if Raven is responsible for his mixed up feelings for her, which based on how she's been written lately is likely. Yeah, no, I, I had the same thing. Then I guess if those are the givens, then he does some okay detective work. Yep. But it's tough because he still pissed me off in this issue in a number of ways. And also, like, I, I don't know, I, I feel bad for him that he can't kiss. So I guess he's made the most of it by only dating people from space. <laughs> That's how we do it here. We just bite. You let me bite your lower lip. And just and just glare at your closed <laughs> eyes and uh, just try to worm the tongue in through your cheek. Ugh. It's what we call Earth style, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's in this issue what it takes to get an aqualad oh my god yeah well you only have two characters that really do anything which brings us to our beast boy again for similar reasons that she is the president of the drama club i feel like bringing in the disembodied head of somebody's cosmic space mom is a bit of a overreach of her responsibilities in that situation i had raven yeah, same thing. I had something in my notes to the effect of, you know, I hate the way that they are writing her, but we have to go on the way she's written. Yeah. So, yeah, there you have it. That was my least favorite version of that category that we've had, where it's two people that I'm annoyed with, but we've got to choose one for each. And it didn't feel good. No, no, we're on the same page. Uh, let's go to things that feel good, Corey. All right. Hot tub orgy. Now, um, <laughs> now, I learned my lesson. I don't want to have a giant crystal man put me in his decolletage. His what? You know, his crystal cleavage. That's what happens if you start doling out hot tub orgy fantasies. Lesson learned. Yeah. So let's instead talk about favorite panels. Ah. What was your favorite panel in this issue? Well, if nothing else, just because it, it cracked me up on page 12, Dick staring intently at the monitor while pretending to be busy to <laughs> avoid processing that he had just kissed Raven. Like, that just cracked me up. But I think my favorite one was the ending panel after the bad guy takes his mask off and drops it on the floor and is, is walking out. We see it from the angle of the floor looking through his discarded sunglasses and mask as he's departing the room. Yeah. It was just a, a really cool angle to see because we hadn't really seen that yet in the comic man once again mask technology in comic books is so fucking advanced this is some like john woo's mission impossible 2 level shit and it never fails to impress and amuse i like that panel a lot too i like the whole mask removal scene as confused as i am why you would take off the facial hair. Maybe he's saving the facial hair for later to put on a different mask. I understand wanting to economize at that point now that you're out of a job as CEO. But uh, yeah, I liked those panels as well. 
I think maybe my favorite is on page 15. I call it Donna's Cloud Flounce. And it's really pretty much apropos of nothing. There's just a nice single shot of Donna flouncing around on some clouds saying, thank Hera, thank Hera. Uh, mm-hmm. I think she's going to go let Starfire know that she doesn't have to go to jail anymore. Mm-hmm. But just a nice shot of a cloud flounce. Yeah, that's pleasant. Yeah. Other than that, it has come up many times, but the uh, Kirby crackle and shrouded giant cosmic mom head berating a security guard was such a distinct panel that you don't see every day. And uh, I enjoyed that. Also, like, how common is it for moms to be like, you should have stuck with a music career? (laughs) How dare you settle down and get a nine to five job with a large company? Whatever happened to your high school band? (laughs) Yep. The other panel that I don't think it cracks into my favorite panel territory, but it was innovative layout that we've kind of come to expect from Eduardo Barreto is on page five. And it is when all of the other Titans have been let out of jail and Coriander is alone in the jail cell. And there's just a pullback and a use of negative space. The panel that shows Raven alone in her jail cell keeps getting smaller and smaller over a course of four panels against a white background. And it's just very effective. It really is a very clever way to show her feelings of isolation. Yeah, it is a bummer. Yeah. What? That just made me notice the panel that's at the beginning of the following page, and I realized that it seems odd that the guy in the morgue who's showing Dick the body that was killed by radiation is lifting it up in the middle of the body? Yeah. Look at this dead guy's junk. (laughs) Hey, you're a coroner, you gotta make your own fun. (laughs) Well... We've discussed Henry's surprisingly supportive slash disappointed space mom head telling him he should have stuck with his music career. Let's talk about the fictional music careers of some other characters, Corey. It's time for a battle of the band names. Weedly deedly doo. <laughs> That's new. I like new it. The theme song I'm working on. Yeah, that is pretty hot. You want to try uh, laying down a tasty lick for that category? No, because I, I'm just going to make the same sound I made that's like in my head now. Okay. So in last week's Battle of the Band Names, we saw the province of science once again emerge victorious after their heated battle with the Somnolomists. So... Who do you want to put up against the lo-fi indie rock stylings of Province of Science? I'm skirting close to the edge of uh, breaking the rules here. I'm going to say if the phrase in the comic that we take as a band name is different by a letter from a band that actually existed, we can use it. How do you feel about that? I'm going to need a concrete example because I'm having difficulty visualizing it. So, in the 1970s, there was a prog rock band called Pavlov's Dog. Okay. But, now, (laughs) there is a band that, I don't know, maybe they just, like, play Stooges covers, called Pavlov's Dogs. Gotcha. That's plural, is the difference. Dogs, not just one. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. 
Which is, you know, historically more accurate. He, he had several dogs. Good point. So this is a well-actually band? The... Is that a category of music? Pedantry rock? Well, actually. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, all right. Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> you're dripping with a little distaste. I do feel like you're going to... I'm just trying to differentiate it. It's not distaste. I want to be supportive. I just wish you would pursue your your musical career, Henry. <laughs> no, I think uh, Pavlov's dogs is distinct enough from Pavlov's dog that, that will keep it as an option. If for no other reason, it keeps the hope alive that one day I can start my classic rock band, The Whom. All right. One of the ones that I came up with was, I think this is a, uh, I don't think we've had one of these before. It's kind of a Motown style band called The Three Principles. <laughs> oh, wow. It's, you know, kind of like the five stair steps or the four tops. And uh, they dress like principals of schools. That's maybe how they met. Maybe that's their backstory. But it is spelled principal, P-L-E. And uh, yeah, they're uh, an acapella Motown group. Wow. That is interesting because the other band choice that I have is, you know, while not strictly acapella, very, very heavily relies on vocal harmonies. And what is that? That is the Manhattan Courthouse. <laughs> they're not transferring anywhere. No, no. But they, they do sound a lot like the like 1985, <laughs> like Twilight Zone song era manhattan transfer mm -hmm. which is some weird shit because i listened to kind of a lot of manhattan transfer when i was researching this <laughs> i think i'm good now <laughs> yeah a little bit goes a long way yeah i had well it's a little bit on the nose but i believe they are a power violence metal band called violence over dinner <laughs> do you think it's like violence over like is more important than dinner or just like violence during Hmm, gosh, I think it's more important than so like sometimes it's probably on their band logo. It's expressed as a fraction mm -hmm. like those. Uh, <laughs> he is greater than I stickers. Yeah, yeah. Wait, that's with the little uh, greater than sign, right? Not a fraction, right? Yeah, it took me years to figure out that was a religious thing. I always just thought it was like, a, I don't know, like a company that like made surfboards like Dakine or something. <laughs> It's like, oh, that's a weird logo. It's super hard to read. Heavy? No. What is it supposed to say? Yeah, I think I would have just thought that was just a self-deprecating bumper sticker. <laughs> just like anybody. Yeah. Well, that guy's better than me. <laughs> oh, why did I buy this sticker? <laughs> uh, but no, I think violence over dinner would probably, you know, set it up as a fraction where the uh, violence is the numerator and dinner is the denominator. Oh, I see. My other option, which is maybe my favorite, would be a alt-country band called Dignity Alcohol. Oh, I think that's got legs. Okay, I'm good with that. You want to go with Dignity Alcohol? Yeah, I think, I think Dignity Alcohol could, uh, could give those plucky Canadians a run for their money. Let's hope so. Yeah, we haven't had an alt-country band yet, so... Let's run that up the flagpole and see who salutes it. I will post the Twitter poll, and we will see who will emerge victorious in the battle of the band names between Province of Science and Dignity Alcohol. All right. Speaking of Dignity Alcohol. Oh, yeah. Don't mind if I do. 
Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? Well, I think we've already talked about the two that I had. One was a buttonless security guard. Mm-hmm. Bright red outfit, which I don't think I've ever seen that on a security guard before. Usually go for more, you know, cooler colors or earth tones. I gotta say, I like it. Yeah, it's not bad. It's easy to read us like, not off-duty, but earthbound astronaut maybe would dress that way, I can see. Mm. Or prison inmate. I was thinking more like, um, I can't remember which one it is, but there's a Japanese obstacle course game show where like the personas of the contestants often have to do with their vocation. So there's like the guy that's the garbage man, the guy that's like the fireman, and things like that. This uniform reminded me of that, like a Japanese firefighter. Huh. So on Japanese game shows, the contestants sometimes get like pro wrestling personas, kind of? Uh, no. Okay. I'm just not familiar with this show and just like, I was thinking of like the dressed up version of Garbage Man specifically. I know there was a pro wrestler that that was his deal. Duke the Dumpster. <laughs> yeah, no, this one was, and, and I don't know if it was just like the particular episode that I saw, but like these guys had been like vying for first place in this really difficult obstacle course challenge show. And they, they both had like these jumpsuits that were related to their vocation. What kind of a jumpsuit would you wear as a localization engineer? I don't know. It just have like uh, maps all over it or something? <laughs> no. Just maps and slide rolls? I don't know what your job is. So you're, you're thinking of, oh, this will be fun for the listeners. <laughs> you're thinking of localization in the sense that like companies that are doing uh, autonomous cars and, and things like that work, right? Like figuring out where an object is in space relative to, to other objects. Kind of like I was thinking in terms of like the, studying the culture that a product would be released in and making sure that it fits in there. That's it. You just described exactly the type of localization oh. that I did. Yeah, it's often I would tell people it's a fancy word for translation with, you know, local being the operative word that describes, you know, you want the person that's consuming that content that you've localized to not realize it's from somewhere else. So, yeah, you could you could have a map on your shirt. Yeah, <laughs> like a map and a, uh, I don't know, what anthropological yeah. tools do you use? <laughs> like a slide rule and a journal by Franz Boas? Probably not a slide rule as much. Probably doing more qualitative than quantitative research, right? Well, no, I mean, both, right? You got to scan software code and make sure that people aren't hard coding how currency is rendered or time or date or how decimals are separated and that sort of thing. Oh, you just totally lost me. So maybe not a slide rule. <laughs> uh, but let's go with the map. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like a dollar sign and a, and a euro. Yeah. Maybe a yen symbol. Oh, totally. Uh-huh. That would be a pretty good look. Thank you. Well, somebody's got a birthday coming up. Oh, please don't. Well, the other piece of fashion that I really enjoyed, which we have also already talked about, is the members-only jacket. It's like a members-only leather jacket that the uh, blonde mustachioed man is wearing on page 10. And his whole appearance is just so specific. I feel like that has to be a coworker cameo, but I don't know who it is. Yeah, and even if he hears everything that Dick and Raven are saying, there's not a good explanation of why he's so completely startled by it. 
Well, I think we lose sight of this a fair amount because we've gotten used to it, but they are dressed fairly distinctively. But this is New York City. Good point. In the DCU, so... Yeah, maybe he's just startled to see such celebrities there. Oh, that could be. Uh, But yes, he looks absolutely startled. Like, maybe those pants he's wearing were not initially (laughs) mustard-colored. Wow. Well, Corey, I have but one further question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1989, and the month of our Lord, January, a month that has been seemingly picked arbitrarily at this point as there are no longer reprints happening, but nonetheless, what was Aqualad probably up to? Good question. Thank you. You're welcome. So... Earlier, in 1988, Aqualad had decided he would like to um, expand his horizons, and uh, he's always had a pretty deep interest in most things science-y. And he got wind of an opportunity to go do an internship for physics at CERN, which is an acronym that stands for, in English, it's the uh, European Organization for Nuclear Research. It's in France, right on the border with uh, France and Switzerland. And they have all these giant particle accelerators. So he basically Mm -hmm. went there to work on those and study those and learn about them and got super into it. One of the interesting things about CERN was they had a very robust network of computers that he was doing a lot of his research on and just really diving into it. Been there for several months when one night he got an urgent phone call from uh, his buddy Cyborg who told him, hey man, you got to rush home because Beaky, who our Eagle Brain listeners will recall was recently at the vet had taken a turn for the worse oh no yeah so aqualad swam back as fast as he could on his sea strength and legs and uh showed up at titan's tower to care for his feathered friend the good news is he was able to nurse him back to health and things were going well the bad news was that he learned he could not connect to all that research he had done back at cern and just super bummed about it. And, you know, I'd spent some late nights uh, getting some uh, technical coaching from Cyborg, who, as we all know, is a real computer whiz, mm-hmm. um, who had suggested that he, that he just really needed to convince the folks at CERN to essentially open up their, their network to the outside world. And so phone call after phone call, he, he finally badgered them into opening up their network to external TCP IP connections. So transmission control protocol and uh, internet protocol connections. Oh, yeah. We all know that. Yeah. yeah, Sorry. But as a result of that, that was an event that many people consider one of the major stepping stones that led to the birth of the World Wide Web as we know it. Mm. So if you like this podcast or anything else online, you can really thank that can of bad tuna fish that Beaky ate back in 1988, the spark that led to the creation of the internet. Wow. Well, that was certainly a significant event in Aqualad's life and in the life of computerings, it would seem. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only thing that Aqualad was up to in January of 1989. As eagle-brained listeners may also remember, a few months ago, Aqualad overspent a bit and accidentally bought a Picasso painting for his good pal Harlequin, the Joker's daughter, at a fancy auction. And since then, he's been having to do a lot of extra chores around Atlantis. 
the thing is, he started getting kind of into it. And, you know, like Karate Kid style training, he's been like, oh, I've actually noticed that having to scrub this whole palace up has been really good exercise and been really meditative for me. But I'd like to get better at cleaning. I wonder if there are any movies that have any, like, helpful cleaning tips. So he started flipping through the local newspaper. And I don't know if you know this, but Atlantis actually gets their newspapers and their film releases a few days before ours. They, <laughs> they have a, a sweetheart deal with time and events. <laughs> so, yeah, their newspapers come out a little bit earlier. So uh, despite the fact that in a lot of places it wasn't available yet, he was able to get to an advanced screening of a movie about cleaning tips, or so he thought, called Gleaming the Cube. <laughs> and he went and saw that movie, and he didn't end up picking up as many helpful household hints on how to get his cubes more sparkly that he was hoping for. But he did see some fantastic stunt skateboarding from the likes of Tony Hawk and the Bones Brigade and a whole bunch of uh, really terrific skateboarders. And he got really amped watching that movie. And so, like, he decided he wanted to go see some really good skating. And he asked around with some of his New York friends. And they're like, well, if you like skating, there's a, a show that you could maybe go see. And so he got himself tickets to Starlight Express, which I think he's done before. But when he showed up, he was like, oh, that's right. This is roller skates. Damn it. I wanted skateboarding. And he was very, very upset that he had accidentally bought tickets again to see this Andrew Lloyd Webber musical about trains that like to fuck, I think. That is all done by people on roller skates. Man, the 80s was a weird time. It really was. Anyway, he was so disappointed that he started using his influence and he got that show canceled, which is why on January 8th, Starlight Express closed at the Gershwin Theater after 761 performances. Wow. And instead, Aqualad saw the Surface World premiere of Gleam in the Cube again on January, Friday the 13th. Good call. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to in January of 1989. Wow. Covering a lot of ground. Yes. To little effect. <laughs> no, and to great effect for yours, actually. And I guess it's pretty significant that he got that weird show canceled. That seems unlike him to use his influence to make sure that he just doesn't make the same mistake again. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, Christian Slater's been a bad influence on a lot of people. <laughs> you blame, he blames Slater, huh? I do, okay. yeah. Man, Lisa is just terrified of him. Well, he's scary. Oh, man, that would creep her out so much. And also, that was a pretty good Christian Slater or possibly Jack Nicholson impression. Thanks, I was going for the former, but I'll take the latter. That's the great part. Pretty much same impression. Yeah. I feel like this is not the first time that movie's come up on here? I don't think it is. Okay. I think it maybe came up when we were talking about uh, Cube Lube, the uh, the Rubik's Cube loop. That's right. Yeah, I think that was the last time it came up, or one of the other times that it's come up. 
It's no thrashing. That's true. What was the other skateboard movie? Gosh, those are the only two that I can think of that were like actual movies. It wasn't thrashing where there's the Nash like plastic skateboard that the newscaster holds up and then the guy smashes the TV. Oh man, your memory is better than mine. I I don't remember. Not good enough cuz it may just be a fever dream that I had. Oh, you're thinking of Skate Man. <laughs> oh, that's right. When aren't I? It is funny. So the two things that really freak Lisa out are Christian Slater, just the very concept of him, mm-hmm. and the opening theme song to Cheers. What? It scares the piss out of her. That is unfathomable. I can't. I'm, I'm so flustered. I can't even say unfathomable. I can't <laughs> say that word. That's such a pleasant song. It kind of is, but if you, I can understand the intro being unsettling because it does have that kind of like montage from The Shining vibe to it with the old timey photos and stuff, you know? Oh, I guess. I don't know. I feel like I grew up with that though, and it has a warm and fuzzy feel. I do too, but she didn't grow up with it. And, and for her, it's very unsettling. Oh, wow. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us and talking for quite some time nominally about this nothing of a comic book (laughs) my pleasure (laughs) mine too i had a very good time talking with you about it much better time than i had reading it likewise and we will be back next week with another defenders comic which i'm very much looking forward to and in two weeks we'll see the new teen titans team up with infinity inc which i'm looking forward to as well in the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so via our post office box at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically via our electronic mail at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can also find us on various social medias attempting to be social via some media so you know just uh type into your tcp ip https which we all remember of course what that stands for just you know type into those things uh search engine and then a search engine will show up and then hit exe.send slash tighten up the defense and we'll be there behind you in the mirror um, <laughs> I don't know if your tech speak is going to lose people, but that last bit is certainly going to make them uncomfortable. Well, then my job is done. <laughs> and hey, if you can't find us there via my very clear and explicit and not creepy instructions, then there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be there. We always have been. What are you getting up to in their hearts this week, Corey? Oh, probably making a cup of tea and reading a good book. Oh, that sounds nice. Uh, what book are you reading? Gosh, I have had on hold for a long time and, and not been able to get it from the library. The latest uh, in the Laundry Files series by Charlie Strauss, uh, hmm. Dead Lies Dreaming. That's probably what I would read. Nice. This is maybe a little bit too on brand, but I'm very much looking forward to there's a new biography of uh, Stan Lee that uh, Abraham Reisman wrote that I'm looking forward to reading. Oh. So maybe I'll join you in there just, you know, 
put my feet up on the uh, on your heart sparkle lounger and just chill out, read a good book. Sounds kind of nice. That sounds pleasant. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you check out that site and you make a donation, you get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. We are reading the Steve Gerber run of Howard the Duck for that. There's also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books. I recently took a look at the 1983 The Falcon Limited series, which is a whole heck of a mixed bag there. But if you want to hear my thoughts on various comic books, you can check that out there. There's also some extra bonus podcasts up there that I've done with Corey and some other people. So if you donate, you get exclusive access to all of that stuff. But perhaps more importantly, it lets us know that you care about the show and want us to be able to continue doing it. And uh, I really want to thank you guys for being so generous with your support. It means a heck of a lot to me. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, well, you can do that as well. What's a, what's a way that people can do that, Corey? They could tell a friend, or an enemy, mm. or write a review. Well, where's a place where they could leave that review? Do you just mean write it down and then lock it in their desk drawer where no one will ever read it? And then many years from now, their great-grandchildren will find it and think, Mima was having an affair with a podcast? I'm intrigued by that, but um, you could do that and type it into a place where reviews can be left, probably the same place where you would get the podcast. Oh, that makes more sense. Indeed. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Leaving us a review in a place. A physical place? A, oh, we've been over this. The internet isn't a physical place. But it's real, nonetheless. Mm. Oh. Corey, it's it's late. We're after dark, and now my mind is blown. I think we need to stop recording. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll see you guys soon. Until next week. Don't drive like my brother. <laughs> and remember, there's no such thing as robots. Mm. No such thing. You got that bleep bloop? Is that okay? Is that an okay take? I was just pretending to talk to a robot who was uh, forcing me to tell people there's no such thing as robots. Oh. I find comedy bits work better when you explain them. Oh, always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, bye. bye. And they knew it. couple of classy fellows over here yes sir and we're on the same page mm-hmm. and it's the page of the classy section of the newspaper <laughs> where all the cartoons are wearing monocles and ascots oh yeah yeah they got ascots on their top hats that's how classy this cartoon section of a fictional fancy newspaper is i can't that would just be like a piece of silk tied around the top of a top hat. Yeah, that makes the whole thing kind of Burning Man, doesn't it? Mm-hmm.
Oh, shit. They're wearing welder's goggles. Oh, uh. no. Unsubscribe. <laughs> Via our post office box. Rah! Oh. I don't know what happened. <laughs> oh, I had like a burp and a hiccup at the same time come out and I tried to talk through it and it didn't go great. You saw, you <laughs> it sounded like I was turning into a chicken. <laughs> you sounded so startled. I was.